This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to the fourth and final Gospel. We'll be covering verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, I did an introduction to John's Gospel, which basically provides you with a helpful information concerning the book as a whole, so you can see the big picture, see why John wrote this Gospel, the audience he was targeting, and also how he structured his Gospel, how he he put it together intentionally with the purpose that he had in mind, which is evangelistic. This is an evangelistic gospel. So I, I do recommend, if you haven't heard it, go ahead and listen to that. It'll be helpful for you. It's called The Fourth and Final Gospel. Three weeks ago, it's up online. But as I said, as a reminder, this gospel is an evangelistic gospel that was written by the Apostle John with a Jewish audience in mind. The Apostle John wrote it toward the end of the first century in order to reach those who worshipped the God of Israel, but had yet to believe that the Christ, who was promised and spoken of in the Scriptures, was Jesus. John's stated purpose in writing his gospel was so that his readers, his Jewish audience, might believe and thus have life in Jesus' name, that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and have life in his name. So John's gospel begins with a prologue. The first 18 verses are his prologue. So before he tells the story of Jesus, the narrative, that begins in verse 19 of chapter 1 and runs all the way through chapter 20. And then there's an epilogue, a final section that he puts at the end. But we're looking at the first part, which is the prologue an introductory section that John places right at the beginning before he gives his account concerning the life and ministry of Christ. And in this prologue, in verses 1 through 18, John is setting the stage for the account he's about to give concerning Christ. And as I said, it runs from verses 1 to 18. And, and really, if we look at this prologue, this, this first section, it can be broken down into three parts. In verses 1 through 5, John provides the background to the narrative that begins in verse 19. He provides the background in verses 1 through 5. And in verses 6 through 13 of this prologue, he gives an overview of his gospel account. And then in verses 14 through 18, he offers up an explanation he speaks to the significance of the things he is saying and that he's about to say in his narrative. So, 1 through 5, background, 6 through 13, overview of the gospel, and four, verses 14 through 18, an explanation for his readers. So, this morning, we're going to look at the first part, that first part of the prologue, which is verses 1 through 5. So, let's go ahead and read that right now, starting in verse 1. John begins his gospel with his prologue, and he begins it this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So according to the, what the, rest of, the rest of what John writes in his prologue, it is clear that the, the word spoken of in these opening verses is none other than who? Jesus Christ. John says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, the only unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he writes, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, thus explicitly identifying Jesus as this one who is the Word. If we want to understand what John was getting at in introducing Jesus as the Word in his prologue, we must keep in mind who his target audience was. Who was that? Like, review this early? Quiz this early? Right, he was writing to Jews, to a Jewish audience. And he introduces Jesus as the Word. So you have to keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to Jews and converts to Judaism, so that proselytes to Judaism, that would include Gentiles who turned from their paganism and embraced the worship of the God of Israel. So a Jewish audience, he's writing to them. They had not yet recognized and believed that Jesus is the Christ. So in other words, this was not a secular audience. This was not an audience steeped in Greek philosophy. So again, if you, if you look at some explanations as to why Jesus, or why Jesus is called the Word, why John chooses that term, why does he call him the Word? Some might offer up, well, in, in a Greek philosophy, there was a belief that there is a, uh, a rational principle that was behind the universe that essentially ordered everything that exists. It was reason that existed eternally uh, behind everything. So there's Greek philosophy. There's explanations that are given of that, but I would say that, again, in light of John's audience, that's not what they would first have in mind when they hear the word. What would they have in mind? What would a Jewish audience have in mind? So it's not a Greek audience, or not an audience steeped in Greek philosophy. It's an audience, rather, steeped in Judaism. And the revelation of God, of the God of Israel in the Old Testament scriptures, was the foundation of their worldview. So again, what we call the Old Testament is their scriptures. That's the foundation of their worldview. Therefore, when they read John's opening statement, in the beginning was the word. What would they have most naturally understood the word to be? The word of the word of the Lord, the word of God. That would be first and foremost in their mind when they hear that term. More than that, they would have also seen in the beginning of John's prologue an allusion, allusion to the creation account that is recorded at the beginning of Genesis. John's prologue opens with the same phrase 
that Genesis does, does it not? In the beginning. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we read of God speaking it all into existence. And throughout the Old Testament, God's word is shown to be the powerful and active self-revelation of God. It is the, the outward expression of his perfect will by which his good purposes are revealed and accomplished. That is the word of God. The outward expression of God's perfect will by which his good purposes are revealed and accomplished. That is the word. In other words, the word of God is the revelation of God and the working of God. And what John is establishing right at the beginning of his gospel is that Jesus is the word of God. By saying this, John is communicating to his Jewish readers that what they understand to be true concerning the word of God is also true of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the word personified. He's the word personified. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said of the word that goes forth from his mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He says that of his word. The word of God goes forth from God to accomplish his will. And one of the clearest examples of this is in God's creation of the world. According to the scripture, he said, let there be. That's the first thing. And then it says it again and again, right? So we see a pattern. Let there be, and it was so. God says, let there be, and then the scripture says, and it was so. In Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So if it was by God's word that all things were created, then that means that God's word preceded all things and was with God in the beginning. His word was with him before the world began. Before there was time, in eternity past, God's word was with him. And that's where John takes us in the opening of his gospel. Into eternity past, before there was time, before the world began, that's where John takes us. He takes us back to before the creation of the world. Genesis opens by telling us, in the beginning, God created And John opens by telling us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Before God spoke his Word, before he said his first command, let there be light, 
His word was with him. In other words, the the word did not come into existence. It did not have a beginning. Rather, John says that in the beginning, before there was a creation, before there was time, the word was continuously existing. The word, therefore, is what? It is eternal, as God is eternal. John then says that the word was continuously existing with God. Now, the preposition with in John's statement, the word was with God, means more than that the word was near or next to or in the presence of God. It's kind of the general sense we get when we say we're with someone, you're near them, we're thinking of proximity, closeness. But the Greek word that John uses, this preposition, means more. He uses a particular preposition that implies that the word was face-to-face with God. Thus indicating that the word was in a a close, personal relationship with God. The preposition he uses can mean toward something. Something. And it means with, but with in the sense of being face-to-face with someone. So it's indicating a, a close personal relationship. And so that's what John is saying of the Word. It was existing continually in the beginning, face-to-face with God. And so it's at this point that John makes it clear that the Word he is speaking of is a person. As a person. So again, the Jewish reader reads it. They understand, yes, the word of the Lord. The word is active and powerful. It goes forth from God to accomplish his will. And then John says it was with God, face to face with God. The word I'm speaking of is a person. This person he explicitly identifies later in his prologue, as we said, as Jesus, the man Jesus. What does this tell us then of Jesus? It tells us that before he was born into this world, he pre-existed in eternity past in intimate fellowship with God the Father. And later in John's Gospel, we read Jesus say the following in prayer. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So far, what John has written of Jesus, the word, is that he is an eternal, uncreated person who has always had intimate fellowship with God. And in light of that, what he says next is really the only logical and possible conclusion concerning Jesus, the Word. If he's eternal, if he's uncreated, if he has always been existing in personal relationship with God, what must we say of him then? John writes, and the Word was God. Now, John has already made a plain distinction in the previous statement between the Word, and God. The Word was eternally existing face-to-face with God, that is, in personal fellowship with the Father. 
So John's already distinguished between the Word and God. Who in the Jew's mind would be, yes, the, the Father, God the Father. John has made it clear that the Word and God the Father, then, are two distinct persons. Two distinct persons. In other words, the Word is not God the Father. Therefore, when we read his next statement, John's next statement, and the Word was God, we know that John is is not equating the two terms and saying that they are one in the same person. He's already established that he's speaking of two distinct persons. So we can't then read the word was God to say, okay, God was the word, it's one and the same. He's already made a distinction. So what do we do? What is he saying then? When he says the word was God, he is saying that this person who is the word is fully God. He's fully God as the Father is. Though they are two distinct persons, they share the same essence. And this is, this is foundational to the doctrine of the Trinity, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the term Trinity, is it in your Bible? Good, I just started doing this just in case. Because sometimes we think, yeah, it must be in there. It's not found in the Bible, but it is used to refer to the truth that the Bible teaches concerning the triune nature of God. That is, that there is one God. Certainly, right? Clearly, there is one God. But he eternally exists as three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is three divine and eternal persons in one divine and eternal being. So you are one person in one being. God is three distinct persons in one being. One of those things we can't think too hard about or our head's going to explode. We, can't, we, can un, we can accept it by faith. We can grasp it enough to understand what is being said. But we are in, it is impossible for us to, to know it fully, to really understand how that works. Because God is completely other than all of creation. He is three divine persons in one divine being. However, that was just for free. John is not laying out, obviously, for his readers, a systematic teaching on the triune nature of God. But it's worth noting because, again, it's something that we need to know. The God of the Bible, the one who is the creator of all things, is triune. And we need to know what we mean by that. He's not one God who sometimes acts as the Father, acts as the Son, right? That is a solitary singular God, our God is triune. We need to understand these things to understand who our God is and what he's like. So what is John getting across here? Not the doctrine of the Trinity yet. 
He's establishing some foundations. But what he's doing in his prologue is presenting to his readers the truth that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. As we will see later in John's gospel, this is affirmed by Jesus' works. That is the miraculous signs he performed. And and again, when John gets into his narrative, the whole first half is called the book of signs. He wants you to see the evidence that Jesus is who he is. He is God. It is also affirmed, the fact that Jesus is God, it's also affirmed by Jesus' own words. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, well, he kind of lived, well, a long time ago, before Jesus was saying this, you know, like over a thousand years. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And he said, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now, do you see how these statements make perfect sense? If Jesus is God, there is one being, and in this one being who is God, there are three persons. So sometimes it sounds that they're almost one and the same, and yet they're distinct. So Jesus' claims were claims to deity. And at the close of John's narrative, we will read... Thomas' great confession in which he called Jesus his Lord and his God. Which is the confession John desires his readers will make as well. However, John doesn't wait until the end of his gospel to tell his readers who Jesus truly is, does he? He doesn't wait till the end. It's not a surprise. It's like, hey, uh, by the way, he's God. If you haven't figured it out yet. He wants his readers to know right from the very beginning who Jesus truly is. So in the prologue, what do we have? We have John's own confession. Right up front, Jesus is God the Son, the eternal Word. He was enjoying face-to-face communion with God the Father in eternity past. And John reiterates this point in verse 2. You see that? He reiterates it. Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning with God. John couldn't have been any clearer in making the point that Jesus is God the Son, a distinct person from the Father, an eternal person, distinct from, yet co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. The implication for John's Jewish readers is that what they understand then to be true concerning the God of Israel, the one true God, as he is revealed in their scriptures, is also true of Jesus. You see that? So what you believe, again, with a worldview based upon the scriptures, our Old Testament, what you believe to be true concerning the word of God is true of Jesus. And now he's saying what you believe to be true and understand to be true concerning God, the God of Israel, the creator, as he's revealed in the scriptures, 
is true of Jesus. What does that mean for us today? What does it mean for anyone who will ever read John's gospel? It means that you cannot separate Jesus from the God of the Old Testament. Can't separate Jesus from the God of the Old Testament. The God we read of in the first 39 books of the Bible is the God who is manifested in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is, according to Scripture, the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What is true of God is true of Jesus because Jesus is God. Is that clear? Can't be any clearer than that. So what is the very, very first thing Scripture tells us of God? The Bible was the very first thing it tells us of God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now remember, John is alluding to the opening of Genesis in his prologue, or in these, these first five verses. What does John write next concerning the Word? Verse 3, first part of it. All things, so again, the one who is eternally with God, the one who is fully God, as the Father is God, all things were made through this one. All things were made through him. The Greek verb translated as made is ginemai. That's a fun word to say. Say ginemai. Ginemai, which basically means to become. To become. When John wrote, in the beginning was the word, he used the Greek verb a me, which means to be. I just want you to see the difference here. In other words, John said that in eternity past, the word was in a state of being, in a continuous state of being. He has, therefore, no beginning. He always is. He is eternal. Now in verse 3, John writes, if we were to translate it even more literally, all things through him, that is the word, all things through him became. That is to say, all things came into existence through him. Or all things were created through him. All things came into existence through him, but he has always existed. All things were created through him, but he is uncreated. More than that, he is the creator. We read of this in Colossians 1.16. The Apostle Paul wrote, For by him, and that meaning by him in reference to him, for in reference to him, Jesus, he's speaking of Christ, all things were created. Again, with him as the center of it all, with him as the focal point. In reference to him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
What's that? Angelic beings, spiritual powers. All things were created through him and for him. You see that? So the Apostle Paul affirmed it, and we also read in Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Through whom he also created the world. So the Son, who is the eternal Word, who is Jesus, the Son created all things according to and in perfect harmony with the Father's will. All things were created through him. And now we read in the next half of verse 3, John clarify, he clarifies what he means by all things. He doesn't mean virtually all things. That is, all things for the most part, like 99.99999%. He doesn't mean virtually all things, nor does he mean all kinds of things. He means all things without exception. In other words, every single thing. John makes this clear, as clear as he possibly can in verse 3. Verse 3, he writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Pretty clear, huh? Could he have been any clearer? Another way to translate John's clarification is as follows. Not even one thing that has been created was created apart from him. Not one thing. Not one thing. And then John then wrote in verse 4. Well, he's the creator, right? He writes in verse 4. In him was life. In him was life. If he is the eternal God and creator of all things, then he is the source of life. Life is not given to him. Life is given by him. Nothing in all of creation, in the material realm and in the spiritual realm, can have life apart from Him, the one who is the Word, who is Jesus. Nothing in all of creation can have life apart from Him. In Him is life. The eternal Word, God the Son, who has life in Himself, gives and sustains all life in creation. We are alive not because we have life within us, like, but I'm alive. Your life is not within you, though. We are alive not because life is within us, but because we are receiving life from outside of us, from the giver of life, our creator. Pretty humbling. We are his creatures, absolutely dependent upon him in every way. Contrary to what people may think, 
no nutrition plan, no exercise routine or surgical procedure or drug prescription or any combination of these things can give you life. All they can do is make you look and or feel better as you approach the inevitable day of your death. There are plenty of people who certainly look and perhaps feel a lot younger than they actually are. Good for them. Perhaps you're one of them. Good for you. But appearances and feelings are irrelevant to the stark reality that we can't actually go back in time. And with each passing moment, there goes another one. We are all one step closer to dying. What happened? Why? The fall happened. God created the world and everything in it, and he concluded his creative work by creating mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And God saw that everything he had made was very good. However, through the temptation of Satan, that fallen angel in whom evil and rebellion against God originated, through his temptation, our first parents sinned against God. And as a result, the physical world fell under the curse of God. And our first parents themselves became subject to corruption and death, which is the penalty of sin. They did not physically die the moment they sinned against God, but they did experience what? Immediate spiritual death. The spiritual dimension of their life, through which they enjoyed loving fellowship, with God was cut off. Eventually, physical death came upon them as well. We read of that. Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death came. Physical death came upon our first parents eventually. In the meantime, though, their sin and thus their guilt and corruption unto death was passed on to their descendants, the entire human race. Our first parents. That is our inheritance. Corruption unto death. The guilt of sin. The sin nature. Since the fall, man has lived in the realm of darkness. That is, in the realm of sin and death. Which lies in the power of the evil one. Of Satan. And death comes to us all because all have sinned, Scripture says, and fall short of the glory of God. This side of the fall, all men live in the shadow of death. We live in the shadow of death. Now, I said all that in order to set you up for what John is getting at in the rest of this passage. Verse 4, he says, In this eternal one, the eternal word, who is God, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. As we've already noted, the life men have is a gracious gift of God, and apart from it, we would be in the darkness of death. In this sense, the physical life we have from the Word, 
the breath of life that he has given us is light to us. But that would be too narrow and too low of a view of the kind of life that belongs to the word. The just and the unjust, after all, have all received physical life from their creator. And yet, we all die. The righteous and the wicked, together. This is not the light of men. What is it then? The light for men who live in the shadow of death is the kind of life that is in the word. True life. Life in the fullest sense, which is life enjoyed in loving fellowship with God. This is life that has no end. In other words, it is the spiritual life that comes from the word that has always been the light of men. Sinners in their natural state all are all awaiting their impending and inevitable death, at which point their, their separation from spiritual life and fellowship with God will be made permanent. And they will be cast into outer darkness, into eternal hell, which is eternal death. The only hope of salvation for them, the only hope for sal- of salvation for all of us, the only light for men, is the eternal life that comes from the Word, who is God, the Son, Jesus Christ. As one commentator puts it exceptionally well in summing up this, this reality, this truth that John conveys here, he says, the life which was in the Word, being uncreated, is of its nature imperishable. Therefore, the life which comes to the human race through and in and from the word must contain within itself the possibility, the prospect, the expectation, and even the sure hope of one day sharing to the full in some deathless life. Hope of this nature will clearly be the light of men par excellence. For all those who here on earth dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. And here's what John says in verse 5. The light shines, is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What John says here, again, is alluding to the first day of creation as recorded at the beginning of Genesis. However, in that account, the darkness is merely physical darkness. It is just the absence of light. And even after God's created light breaks forth, the darkness is not done away with, but remains as part of God's good creation. And the darkness is even given a name. God calls it night. So it's not the same darkness John is speaking of. The darkness that John speaks of here is not physical darkness, but as we've already seen and mentioned, spiritual darkness. It's not merely the absence of spiritual light. 
but the opposition to it as well. The good news, though, is, is twofold. The light of the eternal word's life is continuously shining in the midst of the worldly realm of darkness, sin, and death. His light is continuously shining. And two, the word's light, John says, cannot be overcome. The darkness in this world, the realm of sin and death, cannot overcome the life that is shining forth from the word into this world. Later in John's gospel, we read of Jesus saying, what does he say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We also read of Jesus saying, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So what is John's purpose, again, in writing his gospel? So that, as he says, as he states at the end of his narrative, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right here at the beginning of John's gospel, John has presented to us the fuller sense of Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God. We read the statement at the end, but right at the beginning, we see all that he means by that. Jesus is, in fact, God, the Son, the eternal Word, through whom all things were created and in whom there is eternal life that he will grant to those who believe in him as he truly is. You cannot believe in any other Jesus. You cannot take away any of these th truths that John has presented. He is God, the eternal one, the creator of all things. In him is life, and his life is the light of men and is the light that will shine and give his life to those who believe on him. That's how John opens his gospel, and he will build from that as we continue in his prologue and look at the overview that he gives next. And now I have barely left any time for it. We are doing communion this morning. So we'll prepare for that. Our brother Tim is going to come up and lead us in that. And let me just say a quick prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and, and we thank you for the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Creator, who shares eternal life and fellowship with you. And we thank you, Father, that you have, it has been according to your will, that you have given the life that is in you and in the Son. You have shared this to all those who will put their faith in your Son and believe on him as he truly is. We thank you for the life that we have begun to taste that is in him, this free gift that is unending, this imperishable life that we now have and is the hope of our own 
resurrection unto glory and eternal fellowship with you. We rejoice in that. And Father, I do pray that anyone here who has not embraced your son as he truly is, I pray that they would fall under the conviction of your spirit as they've heard your word concerning him, that they might repent and truly believe on him as he is. Amen.